would. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. This is part two of a sermon from last week entitled, Finding Courage When Wickedness is Growing. I've heard from several of you throughout this series, especially last week, and I'm thankful for the encouragement that you've given. You've said this is timely and needed, and I appreciate that. I'm not into commending any of my sermons, but if, uh, if you, you can go to our website or Google Podcasts to catch up on those if you've missed any. And it's important, I'm preaching this series because the American Christianity of the past 70 or so years is over. Our faith will be tested Walking with Jesus will have a real cost, but that's when God becomes so very real in our lives. That's the time that we're more likely to greatly experience his presence, and Jesus will see us through any single storm that happens to a believer. Our responsibility is to spiritually prepare. So I want to read these verses and jump back into unfinished business from last week. Again, the subject is finding courage when wickedness is growing. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Now I said last week that verse 15 is the key to living the Christian life. It's sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Sanctify means to set apart. So you set Jesus apart from everything and anyone. Lord means master. We are his servant. He owns every aspect of our life. So in any decision, the spiritual affect, the effect on God's kingdom, that comes before anything else. And then the heart, that's the intersection of the mind, uh, emotion, and will, and that's often what motivates us to do what we do. That is biblical Christianity. And Peter gave that command because man wants to enthrone self and dethrone Jesus. Today, he deifies self and humanizes Jesus. He recreates God in his own image. But if we do that, it leads to fear. And here's why. In any area of life where we enthrone self, it means we have assumed control. If we think we're in control... Fear will come when things happen that we can't control. This letter was written when Nero was the Roman Caesar, the Roman emperor. Many years before this letter, Caligula instituted emperor worship. Nero took it to the next level. Once a year, you went into a local temple where there was a little fire burning, and it had a statue or a bust of him. And you had to throw a pinch of incense in the fire and say, Caesar is Lord. Now, that didn't happen empire-wide until Domitian became the Roman Empire, excuse me, Roman Emperor in uh, AD 81. But during Nero's reign, in some areas it was ignored, in some areas it was observed, and in other areas it was strongly enforced. What if it was enforced here? Would you do it? Just say it and protect your family. Just do it so you don't lose your job. Just get it over with and avoid a lifetime of pain. It takes five seconds. You don't mean a word of it, and God understands your heart. Does that sound biblical? 
It doesn't. Some believers then would bribe temple officials to record them as having done it. Some temple officials looked the other way because they didn't care, but some did not look the other way. The cost could be torture and death, and from what I've been able to read, most believers refuse to do it. Their reward today is great. Have you ever wondered what you could withstand before you denied Jesus? Before we entertain any of those questions, let's ask first, verse 15, is Jesus sanctified and Lord in my heart? Obedience flows out of his lordship over our life, and obedience today makes it much more likely we'll have the courage to stand tomorrow. So to sanctify Christ as Lord in our heart means I have to be yielded. Yielding to him will engender courage, and I want you to see two ways it'll do that. One is this, the unity of community. Now, I was securities licensed before I went in the ministry. I've always been fascinated by investing. I'm not any good at it, but it's a world that interests me. In the secular world, investing is long-term. It assumes an age-appropriate level of risk, and it has a goal. In the spiritual world, investing is eternal. It assumes no risk at all, and it also has a goal. The biggest difference is this. Spiritual investing pays dividends for all of eternity, and all of eternity is a redundant statement, praise God. And since Christ is Lord, what is his primary investment vehicle? Where should I invest the time God gives me? Where should you invest your energy, your creativity, your leadership ability? Where should I be willing to inconvenience myself to give sacrificially? The primary investment vehicle God created is the local church. The primary way God reaches the world is the local church. It's been well said there's no plan B. Parachurch ministries are able to be specific, and we thank God for them, but they all emerge from the local church. So I want to say to you, we need your energy. We need your creativity. We especially need leadership ability. Your willingness to be inconvenienced for the sake of the kingdom, which so many of you did this week, and to give sacrificially. We need your prayers. We need your presence. And we need each other to fulfill our God-given mission. When you invest your life in and through his church, you will receive a greater reward than you can possibly conceive. Microsoft's initial public offering was in 1993 priced at $21 a share. So if you bought 100 shares, $2,100 then, and held on to them, that investment would be worth $890,000 today. Now, Outside of maybe the company founders, probably no one possessed the insight to buy 100 shares of their IPO and hang on to them. But right now, you have perfect foreknowledge of where to invest. You can legally engage in insider trading, and you know that the return will be beyond comprehension. And that kind of investment bolsters courage, and here's why. When you invest in and through the church, the Holy Spirit fosters a supernatural unity with other believers. Yes, we have fellowship with other believers outside the church. You have it and so do I. But God designed the deepest fellowship that take place in the local church. The fellowship that I enjoyed this week during VBS was priceless. 
And when we continually sing and pray and preach and serve, the Holy Spirit creates an unbreakable bond and a strand of three cords is not easily broken. Being united in a church community uplifts and strengthens other believers as we fight the good fight. If I'm out there myself, I am going to fade away. But when I have brothers and sisters fighting the same battle, it gives me strength. So when we face this conveyor belt of life's challenges, this is where courage is maintained and grown. The unity of community. Number two, the transformation of sanctification. The Holy Spirit transforms a believer from the inside out from the moment that they're saved. And what follows in is the pilgrimage of the Christian life. It's not a straight path, but it's a walk. We follow and obey him. He increasingly changes our perspective from temporal to eternal. He enables us to see situations through eternal lens, not human eyes, to respond to situations with eternal wisdom, not human reasoning. And as you continue to follow him, you increasingly recognize his work in your life. You experience him in greater and deeper ways. Bolstered by that, you have the certainty that he is with you, that he will not leave you. And as a branch attached to the vine, you continue to grow stronger. You find resilience in that which once stopped you. You find courage in the face of that which once scared you. And you find that you care more about the approval of God than any unholy alliance in this world. So be yielded. Number two, be prepared. Now, most of you, I'm, all of you remember the tornado that went through Linwood a few years ago. I know some of you do because you had property damage from it. Well, I'm kind of a weather nerd, so I'm tracking that storm, and it just missed Lawrence. And then the National Weather Service put a tornado warning out for Tonganoxie, and sure enough, that monster made a little turn to the north. Well, I always try to keep my car full of gas because I want to be prepared. So I was on the verge of telling Terry, get in the car, we're going to outdrive that monster. Turns out I didn't need to. But we want to be prepared. Many of you are well prepared for home defense, or you can seal carry because you want to be prepared when wickedness strikes. So courage comes from being spiritually prepared when wickedness strikes. Look again at verse 15. Peter said, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. To gain courage, there first has to be a readiness. Verse 15 says, always being ready to make a defense. We usually read this verse as if someone will approach us and say, you have something I don't have. Please tell me about Jesus. But folks, this was written to persecuted believers. Beginning in verse 13, the context is suffering. The word defense in verse 15 means to speak in defense of oneself or defense before a tribunal. This probably refers to hostile questioning. To be ready... Know your Bible as well as you can know it. What you would explain simply, you must understand thoroughly. So if someone comes up to you in this modern day and says, why do you hate gays, which of course is preposterous, or I've had this said to me, do you take the Bible literally? Or why couldn't Jesus just send everyone to heaven, be ready to give a defense? Now, we'll double back to this, but I want you to see not only a readiness, there has to be a resoluteness. We can't dodge questions.
questions about what the Bible teaches regarding the hottest pressure points of our age. Sexual ethics, the exclusivity of the gospel, heterosexual marriage, the sanctity of human life. Many persecuted believers do not, they're not, they do not suffer for the essentials of the gospel. Most people don't care if they believe in what, if we believe in what they think is a mythical God, a God who came to earth and died on a cross, they think it's foolish, at least that's my experience, they don't care. Persecuted believers often don't suffer for the essentials of the gospel, they suffer for the ethics of the gospel. Throw incense in the fire and just say Caesar is Lord I can't do that Jesus is Lord several of you have asked me to address the pronoun situation call these people by their preferred pronouns I can't affirm people in condemnatory sin Jesus said love your neighbor as yourself neither can I dishonor Jesus by denying how he created that person Christians sometimes suffer not for what they do, it's for what they won't do. That happened in Rome quite a bit. It's not necessarily what they believe, it's what they won't affirm. It's not the message of the Bible, it's the morality of the Bible. And you and I will be put in spots where we have the opportunity to stand. Now, many ditches aren't worth dying in, but some cannot be avoided. And if we're ashamed of, or we apologize for, or we're silent about the ethics of the Bible, isn't that tantamount to being ashamed of the author of the Bible? There has to be a resoluteness. There also has to be a respectfulness. Verse 15 says, give that defense with gentleness. We're not called to return hateful rhetoric with the same. Stand your ground, but respect the other person even when they malign you. Now, I need to keep moving, so let's go to the next one, and that is reverence. The end of verse 15 says, give the defense with reverence. Gentleness refers to our demeanor manward. Reverence refers to our demeanor Godward. Reverence means to exalt or be in awe of. Reverence means we exalt God and we unashamedly stand with his word. Marriage, of course, has become a very hot topic, and here's a simple truth. Compromise on biblical marriage is tantamount to rejecting the gospel. Compromise on biblical marriage is tantamount to rejecting the gospel. Now you say, why is that? Christian orthodoxy does not rest on a creed or a code. It rests entirely on the biblical revelation of Jesus Christ our Lord. And from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 all the way to Revelation chapter 21, heterosexual monogamous marriage points us to Jesus as the bridegroom and his church as the bride. God made us male and female, and he intends a one flesh husband and wife union. It is a tiny and imperfect picture of his grand and flawless design. Jesus the bridegroom makes ready his bride, the church. And that marriage is consummated when Jesus returns. Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. It'll be consummated then, but it's already been conceived. At the end of the Bible, God gives us a look back. Revelation 22, verse 17, The spirit and the bride, 
say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. So the Holy Spirit is at one with the bride today. Bible-believing churches of all kind from every tribe, tongue, and nation proclaim the gospel. Through those churches, the Holy Spirit extends an invitation to the whole world. And those with ears to hear will repent. They'll believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And as the bride, this is our great commission mandate until the bridegroom comes. Give up monogamous heterosexual marriage, you give up the gospel. Let's put it another way. To be a follower of Jesus is to obey his commandments. That includes matters of sexuality. Now the world will say, Jesus said nothing about homosexuality. Two problems. Number one, all of Scripture is equally inspired. It's called verbal plenary inspiration. Each word of the original manuscript was inspired by the Holy Spirit. The words in Leviticus are just as inspired as the words of Jesus. So number two, Jesus did speak of homosexuality. Matthew 15, verse 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, and sexual immorality. The word there is pornea, the word from which we get the word pornography. It refers to any kind of sexual sin. Let me parenthetically say something. I hate the fact that we have to talk about homosexuality. The evil of our day forces us to understand how to respond to it. So I want you to hear this. If you're watching online, I want you to hear this. If you have same-sex desires, <clears throat> let me try that again. If you have same-sex desires, if you're in a gay marriage, if you're sexually confused, if you're seeking, come on. You're more welcome in this church than you could guess. Sorry for getting so worked up. I want to personally assure you of something. There's a gay man in Kansas City who will back up what I'm saying. That me, my wife, my kids have never looked at a gay person any differently than anyone else on earth. We have personal experience to back that up. So that you don't let the noise of this public debate cut your ears off from the gospel message. Nathan, Kirk, and I will be glad to talk to you confidentially. Maybe more importantly, we'd be glad to listen to you confidentially. And you won't be treated any different than anyone else who comes to us. We can't compromise on biblical marriage or biblical sexuality. God's word will always rub against the world. Reverence for our Lord and his word causes us to rise up, 
resist cultural pressure, the disapproval of others, and find courage when wickedness is growing. Now, we're going to go a little long today. Hang in there. Number three, be cleansed. Verse 16, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. That's speaking to more than the forgiveness of sins. It's referring to clear, having a clear conscience as an obedient child of God. Edmund Clowney said a conscience is an inner sense of what is right and wrong in our conduct and motives. I like to call it a trained reflex. You can train it biblically or you can harden it by carnality. But Peter said we need to keep a good conscience in the thing in which we're slandered. Those believers were being slandered because they lived for Jesus outside those four walls. If you live for Jesus, you will be slandered. If there's no truth in what's being said, your conscience can be clear. And those slanders, the Bible says, will be put to shame by either being exposed in this life or in the next. Two takeaways from this. The first one will throw you a curve. Rejoicing in the Lord brings strength. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. Peter said, to the degree you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. I'm going to quote Edmund Clowney again. This is a little long, but it's good. To break the throttling grip of fear, we must confess God's lordship with more than mental assent. We must confess it with our heart's devotion. Setting him apart as Lord means bowing before him in the adoration of praise. A praising heart is immune to the fear of other people. It's a fear that does not flee in terror, but draws near to God in awe and worship. Paul told the Philippians six times to rejoice in the Lord. He told the Thessalonians, the Corinthians, and the Romans to rejoice in the Lord. And Nehemiah 8 says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. How does rejoicing correlate to strength? I mean, we're made with a variety of emotions. There are times we struggle. There are times we're in grief. So why are we commanded to rejoice? Number one, for the Lord's reputation. God has given us so great a salvation. And when we really understand how blessed we are to be a Christian, what transpires when Jesus returns, rejoicing is a natural response. And what kind of a witness is a perpetually miserable believer? It just adds to the darkness. We're called out of darkness into his marvelous light to show forth his praise and glory so we rejoice for the Lord's reputation. Secondly, we rejoice to bless others. People are angry. It's, it's wild out there. They're taking out their frustrations on each other. If we have something they don't have, why are our responses so similar? This, by the way, is one of the reasons we try to be as active in our community as possible, and it is having an impact. We want to bless our community, to show them Jesus with open hands, no strings attached. The world ought to be able to say, man, they do live a different kind of life. Maybe there's hope for me. So we rejoice to bless others, and then we rejoice for our own sake. Adrian Rogers used to say, it's easier to act your way into feeling better than to feel your way into acting better. Rejoicing blesses you, and the joy of the Lord is our strength. Rejoicing doesn't stop the spread of wickedness, but it exalts Christ to the proper place in our life during the spread of wickedness. So rejoicing in the Lord brings strength, and readiness brings confidence. 
Readiness brings confidence. Here are some practical steps to help you make that defense I talked about earlier. And I'll tell you what, it's getting dark in here, so you maybe want to pay attention. That might be a sign. <laughs> All we need is a lightning bolt outside. Number one, be in a Sunday morning class. We have tremendous teachers who prepare. We have great student and children's teachers. Be faithful every week. Do that so you can be equipped. Second, there's the daily value, the tremendous value, the daily quiet time. You pray, you seek God's face, you get in his word. You realize he wants to speak truth into your life. And the Holy Spirit teaches you wondrous things to behold. Number three, get a Bible translation you can understand. And NIV is written at a sixth grade reading level. It's meant to be easily read. I know sometimes the Bible is a little hard to understand, but that's a good translation. A New Living Translation is almost a paraphrase, but it's very helpful in Bible study. I use it. These things are free online. I use a more literal translation, which is the NASB, but it's closer to the original languages, and it has some awkward syntax as a result. But get a Bible you can read. The fourth step, be in church every Sunday. Commit to a church. Be a member. It's the Lord's Day, and the Lord intended you to hear the exposition of God's Word. Being in church on Sunday is like putting out a trout line. That's what we used to call it anyway. If you leave it there in the water, over a few days, you have a nice catch. You do that week by week, year by year, you'll be amazed at what you learn that it will enable you to make a defense. And then the last one is very important. To give an account, know your testimony. How did you come to Jesus? Your testimony should include, what was it like being convicted of sin? How did you know you needed to be saved? How were you saved? Now, if you can't answer that, let's have a conversation. What did he change in your life then? What difference is he making in your life today? What is your certain hope for tomorrow, and why do you hope? Salvation is a transaction that happened in the past that is making a difference in your life today. So get, and I'm serious about this, get a 30-second, a 60-second, and a three-minute version of your testimony. Rehearse it. Rehearse it a lot. Get it down. There are situations where you have an opportunity to have a little gospel witness. That's what you can conclude in. Just be able to whip it off in a moment's notice, and you will make a defense in this evil day. And it could be that you don't have a salvation testimony. And I want to say this to you. God is sovereign. You didn't decide to come here today. He brought you. And God brought you here, and he brought me here from 50 years ago on the banks of the Mississippi River. He brought us together at this time so you could hear the gospel and be saved today. It's very simple. Repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross to take God's wrath in your place. By faith, you can have eternal life. If you have questions about that, talk to myself or Nathan or Kirk or someone near you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you. For this day, thank you for the blessing of Vacation Bible School, the people who have served, the, the Holy Spirit who ministers to us. Father, thank you is something that we should repeat constantly in prayer. And I'm so grateful that you love us, that you died on the cross for us. And I pray right now that you would draw many, many people to yourself. It could be someone who made a profession of faith years ago, but they know in their heart it wasn't real. It could be someone who's hearing the gospel for the first time. We pray many would be saved, that lives would be changed, and you would be greatly glorified. 
I thank you for the people that are sitting here today. I pray that you would bless them in wondrous ways, and I pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.